Welcome to another edition of Northwestern Outdoors Radio, the award-winning show covering fishing, hunting, conservation, destinations, and other outdoors recreation across the greater Northwest. Northwestern Outdoors is brought to you by Max Lur, Sportsman's Warehouse, Sina Sea Seafood, and Wallowa County Chamber of Commerce, and the Northern Pike Minnow Sport Reward Fishery Program. And now, let's see what's happening this week with your host, John Cruz. Welcome aboard. Unfortunately, we're starting things off today on a sad note. A major player in the fishing industry passed away following a plane crash on the morning of June 28th. Tom Posey, the owner, CEO, and president of Lamaglass, a very well-known fishing rod company based in Woodland, Washington that's been around since 1949, was flying his Beechcraft Bonanza from Pearson Field in Vancouver when Something happened. He made brief contact with the airport tower in Portland, turned around and did make it to the edge of the airfield, but unfortunately his plane flipped, caught on fire, and Tom Posey was killed. Our condolences go out not only to Tom's wife, but also to all of his extended family and to his employees at Lamaglass too. This is a really tough situation. This week on Northwestern Outdoors Radio, we're going to talk about another saltwater species, and that would be the European green crab. It's an invasive species that's causing increasing problems up and down the Pacific coast in Oregon and Washington. And Chase Gannell with the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife will let us know why these crabs are harmful and what's being done to try to control them. Another not-so-good news story we'll be sharing is about a poaching case in Reedsport, Oregon. In the early morning hours of June 17th, a young man took out a pistol and shot a blacktail buck in the parking lot of the boat launch in Reedsport. Trooper John Cooper will be joining us to tell you more about this case, and he's really hoping that you're going to have some information that will help him crack this case, too. And it being summer, we of course have to talk about heading into the mountains to catch some trout. And one person who loves to do that as much as I do is Jason Brooks, that very well-known and prolific outdoors writer. He just wrote an article on this very subject that you can catch in the June edition of Northwest Sportsman magazine. And he'll be telling you how he likes to go about mountain troutin' and how he likes to cook up those fish too as a shore lunch. In addition to this, Bobby Schendelar, a pro staffer for Max Lure, joins us for an extended Max Minute to tell you about a great kokanee fishing reservoir in Idaho that's not too far from Boise. Throw in our Sportsman's Warehouse trivia question of the week and some information about some upcoming salmon derbies, and I would say we've got a great show coming your way. So let's get it started the way we always do with another edition of Sportsman Spotlight with David Sparks. Modern Fishing Kayaks, David Sparks, Sportsman Spotlight. Damon Bungard's the product manager for Jackson Kayak and talked about facilitating both standing and sitting while fishing. How comfortable somebody is standing and fishing is a function of the person and their physical ability and their comfort level. But that's why we make kayaks that even though they're for standing, there are some that are more stable than others. Big rigs, seen 300-pound guys that have never stood a kayak before stand in that kayak. And then we have other ones like our Kraken, which is more of an offshore model that people will still stand and fish from they're using it for certain applications, but it's a narrower hull and not necessarily designed as much for standing, but guys that are nimble still do it. When it comes to standing in a kayak, the other big side of it is the seating system. And if you 
plop your butt on the floor and try to stand up, it's hard. If you're seated on a small stool and you try to stand up, it's much easier. All of our fishing kayaks have, it's basically a lawn chair. Every climbing, very comfortable seating system that has multiple on our seats. They, they can go from a low position to a high position. So based on your comfort level, you can put that seat either at a lower, more stable position for when you are seated. But if you want to get up and down a lot, you put that in a high seat position and the act of standing or seating back down is much more stable and much easier because you're already in that position where your thighs can engage and help you stand up. You're not trying to overcome being below where you're trying to stand. That kind of functionality is just one of the standard features in modern fishing kayaks. Hope you enjoyed Sportsman Spotlight. I'm David Sparks. See you next time. Let us be totally honest about a very important subject. Agriculture is amongst the most important industries in the world. Everybody has to eat, and what you are eating formulates who you are. And it doesn't matter who you are. You should be aware of the trends, the science, the issues surrounding all things agriculture. That's where the Ag Informationist comes in. We diligently cover every aspect of agriculture on a daily basis. It's our passion. It's our job. It is our commitment. The Ag Information Network, covering over half of the nation's potato acres and a third of the nation's wheat. We've been bringing news and information to these Pacific Northwest producers for 40 years on 73 radio stations. With the large amount of farmland that our network covers, our region's farmers are on the go, tuning in behind the wheel of a truck or tractor. The Ag Information Network, trusted and transparent journalism lasting for the next generation. Sportsman's Warehouse is America's premier outfitter, full of the gear you need to succeed this hunting season. Firearms, ammo, archery equipment, decoys, clothing, boots, and more. You'll find it all at Sportsman's Warehouse. Better still, the knowledgeable staff can help you with tips to help you bag a trophy or a limit. Find a location near you or shop online today at sportsmans.com. Country hunters and anglers, you may have heard of us, but what are we about? BHA is the voice for your wild public lands, waters, and wildlife. From national level policy work to boots on the ground projects like public land cleanups, we work across North America to uphold the legacy of our public lands and waters, as well as your opportunity to hunt, fish, and recreate on them. Stand up for public lands and waters and become a BHA member today. Visit backcountryhunters.org. You're back in with Northwestern Outdoors Radio. I'm John Cruz, and we need to talk about a problem we have got off the coast here in the Pacific Northwest. That problem is called the European green crab. There's a whole bunch of them that are showing up as of late. And with us here to tell you more about this situation and what's being done to address it in Washington State is Chase Gannell. He's a public affairs officer with the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife. Chase, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. Let's start off by talking about the European green crab. I think I figured out from the name where they come from, but how did they get here in the Northwest and how big of a problem is it at this point? Yeah, I appreciate you touching base on this important topic. You know, European green crabs have been present in North America since the 1800s and they were first documented on the West Coast in the San Francisco Bay Area in 1989. It's possible they came in either ballast water on ships or in packing material. They have a, a larvae that is transported that's very small and can stow away on vessels, and it's likely that's how they got to the West Coast. 
And since they were confirmed in 1989, they have moved north, primarily with warmer water years, those El Nino years that we've seen. And they were slowly documented in Oregon and in British Columbia, and then first appeared on the Washington coast in low numbers in 1998. And then more recently, we've found them in the Salish Sea in areas of northwestern Washington and southern British Columbia, such as the San Juan Islands and Padilla Bay in 2016. And that's a, a long period of time that these crabs have been present. But what really changed in recent years, we've seen some very warm summers, warm water conditions that these crabs thrive in. And particularly since 2018, we've seen an explosion in green crabs at certain locations, such as Willapah Bay and Lummi Bay, and have in fact captured tens of thousands of them in those areas. So the green crab, it's not as big as the Dungeness or the rock crab. I understand they only get to be about four inches wide on the back, but they cause a lot of problems. Why don't you explain that? Yeah, they really are an interesting animal. I recently had the opportunity to go out with some tribal biologists and capture a few myself. They're quite small. The average green crab that we captured was just a little bigger than a quarter. A very large European green crab might be up to four inches across or a little smaller than your fist, but the vast majority of them are much smaller than that. And they're all shelled. There's not a lot of meat to them. They're very narrow, hard crabs. And unlike our native crabs that most people think about, the Dungeness or the red rock crabs, these are shore crabs. They actually live in the shallow intertidal areas, sometimes on the shore itself. They really like muddy backwater areas like estuaries and mudflats. They're quite different than the Dungeness crabs that say you would drop a pot out in 40 feet of water and pull up Dungeness. No, these crabs are actually in that shallow, muddy area in the intertidal zone. And it's in that area that they can have a real impact. On the East Coast and in places like California, we've seen that European green crabs can dig up and disrupt estuary habitats. They can eat eelgrass, which is an important native seaweed for many different species. And they can predate on native shellfish like clams and juvenile oysters. And there's research that's ongoing to better understand how they compete with juvenile Dungeness crabs and other crab species that are also found in that intertidal area. So all in all, they're, they're really a threat to our estuary habitats, habitats that are important for everything from salmon to killer whales. But it's important to keep in mind that this is a species that's different than our native crabs. They're not out in deeper water. They're in shallower areas. And that itself presents some management challenges because they can be found on both public and private tidelands. Well, I understand, based on your description of the crab, why there's no recreational crabbing. There's just no meat to eat, so to speak, and no size that anybody's going to want to go after. If people find these green crabs while they're at the beach, what should they do? Yeah, we ask people that think they've seen a European green crab or its shell to go ahead and report it to the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife. If you go onto our website, which is just wdfw.wa.gov slash green crab, we have a reporting form where you can put in the information of the sighting. We also have some identification guides on our webpage to help you distinguish these crabs from native shore crabs. Some of our native hairy and purple shore crabs in particular are, are quite similar looking to the green crabs. And we don't want to have cases of mistaken identity where people are out there smashing native crabs, thinking they're European green crabs. Now, at this time, we are not asking people to kill them. That could change in the future. 
But again, part of the reason behind that is that these crabs, we do have big infestations at localized areas in Washington, places like Willapop Bay and Lummi Bay. But outside of that, they're actually not that numerous, and they haven't been found in Puget Sound proper just yet. So in the short term, our priority is to manage those infestations where they do occur using emergency measures and some funding that we recently received from the state legislature, and then also conduct monitoring and rapid response trapping in other areas so that when people do report a green crab or two or one of our partners catches a, a small number of green crabs, the department and our, our allies can go in and really heavily respond, almost carpet bombing the area with crab traps so we can remove as many of them as they can. And again, we appreciate that a lot of people want to get involved in this and, and want to support us in removing these crabs. In the future, we might consider changes to, to how people can do so. But for now, because the infestations are very localized and because they aren't all that widespread in Washington just yet, our focus is really on the emergency management side of things. You're listening to Northwestern Outdoors Radio. We're talking to Chase Gannell with the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife about the European green crab, which is uh, rapidly growing in numbers in Washington State and Oregon and California and British Columbia and causing some real problems in our estuaries. So prior to this emergency declaration that Governor Inslee signed in the middle of June, what was being done to remove these European green crabs, and how is that going to change now that this emergency declaration has been signed? Yeah, as I mentioned, since 2018 is when we really started to see this big increase in European green crabs in Washington. And again, this is a crab that from the Mediterranean and Western Europe, they do thrive in warmer water conditions. So it's probable that the warm waters we saw in 2021 in particular, I think we all remember that heat dome, those had a big impact in allowing them to proliferate in our state. There was trapping that the Department of Fish and Wildlife and tribal partners, groups like Washington Sea Grant from the University of Washington and others were doing in recent years to monitor for these crabs and to remove them. But as those numbers increased, we knew that the response needed to increase as well. So as you mentioned, the, the governor did issue an emergency order directing the Department of Fish and Wildlife to ramp up our efforts to control European green crabs. And then following that emergency order, the Washington State Legislature approved additional emergency funds to the total of $8.6 million to both support our efforts to remove European green crabs and then also to get resources out into local communities so that people that want to help can do so. And I really want to underscore that if you are interested or if you're a club or nonprofit or you're a commercial fisher, others that do want to do European green crab trapping, there is now a process to apply for funds through local conservation districts and through the Department of Fish and Wildlife to get resources and permits to do so. So that's one of the things that we're starting to roll out to control European green crabs. It's not just the Department of Fish and Wildlife and our partners that are doing this control work. There's funding available to get the community involved as well. All right, last question for you, Chase. If people do want to get involved, is there a website we can direct them to? Yeah, I would suggest that folks go just to the Department of Fish and Wildlife, so wdfw.wa.gov slash green crab. We have a, a number of resources there, and we also have a, a few other pages that you can access from that page that will share more information about the grant funding that I mentioned for local entities that want to get involved 
the emergency order and the incident command system that the Department of Fish and Wildlife has been rolling out to coordinate our efforts with partners and the number of green crabs that have been captured already this year, which is a little over 64,000 so far in 2022. So we know that this is a, a real issue. It's something that we want to get ahead of in Washington before these crabs become as numerous as they have in other states like California. And we appreciate all the interest and support in doing so. The European green crab, it's a problem, but you might be in a position to help. Again, the website to go to, wdfw.wa.gov slash green crab. Find out what you can do. Chase, thanks for sharing this with us today on Northwestern Outdoors Radio. Thank you. Anglers are getting a raise this year with the Northern Pike Minnow Sport Reward Fishery Program and the fish are biting. Here's how it works. First, register at a pike minnow station along the Columbia or Snake River. Next, go fishing for pike minnow and bring back all of them that measure 9 inches or longer. The fish are worth 6 8 or $10 and the more fish you catch, the more each one is worth. Keep an eye out for tagged fish too because those are worth 500 bucks. Go fishing, make money, and have fun. Find out more at pikeminnow.org. with more of the great outdoors on Northwestern Outdoors Radio with John Cruz. It's that time again. It's time for another Max Minute brought to you every week by Max Lure. And today we've got a new pro staffer with us, at least new to me. His name is Bobby Shendelar. Until recently, he lived in Boise, Idaho. Now he's in Spokane, Washington, and he loves to fish. Bobby, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. So let's talk about a kokanee lake near Boise that you would recommend for summertime fishing. One of my favorites is Anderson Ranch. It's located uh, north of Mountain Home, about a, a half hour drive, about an hour and a half from Boise uh, to the east. It's right on the southern end of the Boise National Forest and is just one of the premier kokanee fisheries in uh, southern Idaho. How big are the kokanee there and how plentiful are they? The kokanee on Anderson Ranch are really nice fish. Uh, they can average anywhere from 16 to 20 inches. However, it's not uncommon for folks to catch that 22-inch, sometimes even a little bit bigger fish. And the numbers vary depending on the water temperature, on whether they're willing to bite or not. But there are good numbers of fish, and the fish that you do catch are going to be quality fish. All right. Well, the next question on everyone's mind, how do you catch those kokanee out of Anderson Ranch? Well, a starting point for me is I like to use the wiggle hoochie paired up with a, a silver UV and pink sling blade. And what I do is I put that wiggle hoochie back about 8 inches off of the sling blade. Oh, so I, really close. Yeah, fairly close. So 8 to 12 inches is a, about the distance that I use. If they're being really finicky, sometimes I might make that leader length a little bit longer. But 8 to 12 inches, these bigger fish aren't afraid of the sling blade. And they'll come in and they usually just hammer it. So that's usually a good pairing. And the hot color for the wiggle hoochie. You know, pink is uh, my favorite. Uh, however, orange is also a good backup. All right, Anderson Ranch. It is one of Idaho's premier kokanee fisheries. And if you want to find some of those sling blades and wiggle hoochies to use there, just go to maxlure.com or a quality sporting goods store near you. Hot summer nights mean hot morning fishing for sockeye here in the northwest and Max Lure Company has got what you need to catch a limit with the Double D Dodger and two great sockeye rigs. The Double D Dodger has a unique fast slow action and can be fished away from the boat without a side planer. The Cha-Cha Sockeye Rig and Double Whammy Sockeye Pro both feature a patented smile blade and two stout red hooks that won't let go of that salmon when it bites. Max Lure Company. 
getting you into the sockeye this summer. Sportsman's Warehouse is America's premier outfitter with the gear you need for fishing, hunting, camping, paddling, cooking, and just about anything else you can do in the woods or in the water. With over 125 stores across America, there is bound to be a Sportsman's Warehouse near you with not only the gear you need, but also the experts to help you get the most out of the product you purchase. Head down to your local Sportsman's Warehouse today or shop online anytime at sportsmans.com. That's sportsmans.com. Planning to head outdoors today? The National Shooting Sports Foundation reminds you to check the fire danger levels in your area. Whether target shooting, camping, or even parking a car with a hot exhaust, remember to take precautions. As we know, wildfires have many possible causes. Don't be one of them. You're back in with Northwestern Outdoors Radio. I'm John Cruz. It is summertime, and that means it is a great time to lace up your hiking boots and head to a mountain lake and catch some trout here in the Northwest. With us here to tell you more about this is a man who just wrote an article about this in the June edition of Northwest Sportsman Magazine, Jason Brooks. Jason, great to have you back on the air. Thank you for having me, John. I love fishing alpine lakes. I know you do too, but it's kind of an untapped opportunity. You know, when I go hiking these lakes, I see lots of other people hiking, but very, very few of them actually have fishing rods with them. And there's a whole bunch of lakes here in the Northwest, especially in Washington State, that have lots of trout in them. Yeah, there are a lot of lakes and a lot of places that are absolutely stunning when you get up in there. And, of course, the hikers are going through and looking at the views. And I'm thinking, there's got to be a big old trout underneath that boulder over there. I've got to go go, go try and catch that fish. Well, everybody else is looking at glaciers and, and rocky peaks. I'm, I'm looking for fish. <laughs> oh, no, I hear you. You know, you and I both live in Washington State. And I don't think the other states have any web pages dedicated to high lakes fishing, but the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife does, and they've got all sorts of information for you, don't they? It is probably the best resource I have ever found on locating lakes, on not only on, on the lakes themselves, but they've got a stocking report. They've got a tab that shows overabundant lakes. I mean, these lakes actually have too many fish in them, and they want you to go to these lakes and catch these trout. And then they have an easy access type lake. They call them starter lakes. So if you're just starting into alpine lake or high lakes fishing, these are ones you can go to and not worry about, okay, I'm going to kill myself trying to get to this lake and then have to fish it. Instead, it's go there, learn how to fish these lakes, and then maybe next time go to a little more uh, remote lake after that. So yeah, they're, they're the tabs they have, the, the links that they have, real quick example, you find a lake, you know, you've been hiking up this, this a certain mountain range, and you find a lake up there, and you're like, I wonder if there's any fish in this lake. You go back, you do a little bit of research, you hit the tab. It will tell you when the last time it was planted, what it was planted with, how big the lake is. But even if you find a new lake, one you've never been to, there's GPS locations and a Google Earth map link that you just tab, and then boom, there you are. It tells you where the trailhead is, how to get there, the species that can be caught. It's a phenomenal resource. Oh, that's good to know. And by the way, they might call them starter lakes. I would also call them senior lakes for those of us who are getting older and can't hike as far <laughs> in the backcountry as we used to. 
Yeah, that, that's a good point. That's a really good point. And keep in mind, those lakes themselves are probably going to be pretty busy with more than uh, the anglers. You know, that might be the ones where you also find the families hiking into for the weekend. The person taking their dog and playing frisbee out in the middle of the lake, and you're like, oh, no, I wanted pristine fishing. Well, these starter lakes mean that they're actually easier access to get to, but they're still in a beautiful setting for everybody to enjoy. So that's where you might want to start doing a little research to find more of those remote or rugged lakes to get into. Let's talk about the species you're going to find at these mountain lakes, not just in Washington, but the Northwest in general. Obviously, a lot of lakes have been stocked with rainbow trout, but... You know, if you like cutthroat trout, this is one of your better opportunities to catch those. You've also got golden trout. And now I have yet to catch one of those, and they're not in a whole lot of lakes, and they, they tend to be in ones that are hard to get to as well, aren't they? That is true, yeah. They're very unique-looking uh, trout, real yellow and with a red band down them, real beautiful, ugly, either way you look at it. Uh, but but with that being said, there are a few lakes, at least in Washington State, where they do stock them. Um, and some of them are more of a native strain for the high alpine. I, I think they came from Colorado, if I remember right. I'm not sure. But with that same note, you know, the cutthroat is the, probably the most, most prevalent one of them. They, when they stock these lakes, they do like the, the hardier species, the rainbow, the cutthroat. The thing about them, though, is that these fish are put in these lakes to be caught. So what I mean by that is a lot of these lakes were sterile to begin with. So don't think that when you go there and you catch these fish, this is like some real rare thing and that, you know, this is a very you know fragile fish. No, it's a fragile ecosystem. We'll get to that in a minute. But the fish itself was put there for you to catch. So don't feel guilty if you decide to keep one or two for shore lunch. In fact, a lot of the times they want you to keep some of these fish for shore lunch. But that being said, the one species that is probably the most detrimental is the eastern brook trout. Right. And that's because it's a char, and it can spawn in the lake itself, and they can become overpopulated real quick, and they can even push out any sort of native species that might have been there to begin with. You're right about that. I mean, I love brookies. I have a soft spot for them, but I have also seen places like Myrtle Lake up the Indian at river drainage that are just completely overrun with little four-inch brook trout that are all stunted. So you're right about yep. that. Let's talk about catching trout in alpine lakes. Spinning rod or fly rod, what do you prefer and why? I prefer a, a combination of, which means I will take a spinning outfit with me. I will mostly use dry flies. I really want to stress to the listeners to leave the bait at home for yes. several reasons. One, these are pristine alpine lakes that are very clear, clean water. We don't need to be introducing anything into these lakes, even the smallest amount of chemicals. But also, there's just no need to take bait up there because these fish are literally, their diet is 100% insect-based. And so... Why not make it more fun and match the hatch per se? So I'm going to really stress that, that, you know, leave the bait at home. There's a high mortality rate with bait, even if you don't catch the fish, so you, you miss, a, miss a bite. But with that being said, put, you know, table that for a second. I try to use a spinning rod, but I use what's called a, a bubble bobber. It's right. a, a teardrop-shaped bobber that for a fly, you know, using a, a dry fly behind it with a spinning rod, if that makes sense. It does, and I've done it many a time. And these bobbers, some of them you can actually fill up with water to give it a little bit more weight and cast out there. And, and I guess that's kind of the big deal about fly rod versus spinning rod. You know, a lot of these alpine lakes, they gently slope into deeper water where the trout are. And if you have a fly rod, you're fishing from shore, you simply can't reach them. But if you have that casting bubble, like you said, you can cast out there where the trout are, can't you? 
Yeah, definitely. And also keep in mind, you're spending a lot of energy and time to get to this lake. I mean, you you might be hiking for an hour. You might be hiking for four hours to get up into there. Why not bring an outfit that's extremely versatile? You can fly fish or use flies flies with the spinning rod with this outfit we're talking about. Or you can switch over and use a spinner or a small spoon. So why would you limit yourself to just a fly rod when you have a a different outfit, a a spinning rod that is very versatile? And also keep in mind, you have to worry about your back cast with a fly rod. You have to worry about afternoon winds, which will come up, and thermals that will come up. And so you're hiking all this way, and it might be a beautiful day, but there's enough breeze that you can't get your fly out there. Well, great. Now you went on a hiking adventure instead of a fishing adventure. So that's why I use the spinning outfit. There you go. And if you're looking for suggestions on hardware to use, as far as spoons go, don't ask me why, but the Acme Castmaster in blue in chrome is deadly, as is Daredevil spoons. And so are MEP spinners, rooster tails, and Max Promise Keeper spinners, too. They all work great at Alpine Lakes. Speaking of shore lunch, which you mentioned a few minutes ago, let's talk about how you like to prepare your trout when you're at an Alpine Lake. It actually depends on where the lake is at. So there's different regulations for different lakes. Keep in mind, some of these lakes are in uh, national forest, some are in wilderness areas, some are in national monuments, and some are in national parks. So depending where it's at, for instance, in the wilderness areas in Washington State, where I live, you cannot have a fire above 5,000 feet at, at no time at all. And people don't even realize that for the wilderness areas. So the one way I prepare it is, of course, to take a little camp stove and a little titanium frying pan. I use coconut oil because it's a solid at room temperature. So I don't have to worry about leaking into my pack. If the container comes open, more than likely it's not going to leak out and get all over my pack. And then I'll take up a little shaker with uh, already with the spices and a little bit of flour mixed together so it's all ready to go. You butterfly the uh, fish, which is basically you, you dress it out, you gut it out like, like you normally do, and then I just keep going and flay down to where I leave the skin intact on the backbone, but it, it butterflies out, and I basically see in that thing and I put a little bit of the coconut oil in the pan and fry it right up. If I'm allowed to have a fire, I'll make it even simpler and I'll just take up some tin foil. Don't have to worry about the stove, don't have to worry about the frying pan, and I'll pretty much do the same thing and just wrap the whole fish up in some tin foil, get some get a fire going, get some coals going, and then lay it right there in the coals and just bake it that way. And lastly, the way my son loves to do it the most is literally put it on a stick like you would a hot dog. <laughs> but you butterfly it out. You can make a little, uh, what you call it, basically take some sticks and you run it through the sides of the fish. So it opens it up and you take another stick and run it through like a skewer. And then you just have a little fire with these two rocks. You get two decent sized rocks. And so the fire's in between the two and you can just lay it right across the top and you can just basically uh, cook it that way over an open fire. And that's just, it's absolutely delicious. Yeah, probably the best meal you'll have is a shore lunch with high alpine lake trout. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Alpine lake fishing, folks, you really ought to do it if you haven't. It's a beautiful setting. The fishing can be fantastic, and the eating can be good, too. Go ahead and check out the June edition, if you can still find it, of Northwest Sportsman Magazine to find this article, and keep your eye on that magazine for other articles by Jason Brooks in the future. Jason, thanks for sharing your passion with us today on Northwestern Outdoors Radio. Thank you so much. Welcome back to Northwestern Outdoors Radio. I'm John Cruz. Our next stop is the Beaver State of Oregon. A shocking poaching case took 
place in Reedsport on June 17th. And the Oregon State Police need some help in solving this case. They've got some good evidence, but they need an identification on the suspect who did this. With us here to tell us more is Trooper John Cooper with the Oregon State Police. Trooper Cooper, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Why don't you give our listeners some more details about this poaching case that happened in Reedsport on June 17th? Okay. On June 17th, 2022, approximately 3 a.m., there was a male subject that came out near the old boat launch over near East Railroad Avenue and Riverfront Way. He then walked down uh, Riverfront Way past uh, the Umpqua Discovery Center and Schooner Inn Cafe and walked down to the new boat ramp, which is down at the intersection of Riverfront Way and Water Avenue. During that time, he stopped right by the uh, Big Fish Cafe and Waterfront Restaurant and walked near the bathroom of that ramp and uh, spooked some deer. It looked like he was kind of trying to sneak up on them uh, at first, and then they had moved. So he ended up walking back into the parking lot and walking around some camp trailers and a van, all of which were occupied in the parking lot and ended up sneaking close to a young buck and shooting it with a handgun. There's video surveillance that has been released. We're taking from there's little snips of that video for still time. And we are actively working on following up with some leads that we received. In regards to that case, kind of a lot of assistance from the public that we haven't yet identified exactly who it is. So this appears to be from the, the photos I've seen, white male in his 20s or 30s. Is there any vehicle associated with him, or is all the, the video just showing him on foot? It's just him on foot. He's smoking a cigarette with his right hand, and he uh, has something in his left hand. We're trying to figure out exactly what it is. At times it looks like it's the handgun. At times it looks like it might be like a Red Bull can, like one of the more narrow cans carrying it from the top. But we know he had a firearm, so that part's not a real important whether or not he was carrying it at the time. Uh, my guess is that he had it concealed as he was walking and then didn't bring it out until he made a play on trying to shoot the deer. So he shoots this buck. I presume it just drops dead and he just walks away. Is that about the sum of what happened? The deer is struck. It runs back over to the grass and then flails around for a while. And he left on foot. Um, we don't have a vehicle associated with him. We was a single shot. We have recovered bullet and the shell casing out of the parking lot and out of the deer carcass. So with, once we identify a suspect, then hopefully we'll be able to match up the uh, firearm with it. You know, this is just absolutely disgusting. If he is identified, and I hope he will be, what charges will he be facing and what kind of punishment would he be facing? I believe it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when we identify him. We've got a lot of different uh, options as far as pursuing uh, these leads, uh, search warrants and whatnot. And it's pretty very rare that we don't end up identifying our suspect in a case like this. He's going to be looking at, uh, so this is clearly not a hunter, this is a poacher. Right. And this is complete waste. So you're going to be looking at unlawful take of a deer. You're going to be looking at, even though it's poaching, it's going to be hunting outside of outside of season. It's going to be no, no tag. 
public boat ramp in the middle of town, probably going to have reckless endangering, being that he was as close as he was to them, discharging a firearm inside the city limits of Reedsport. There's a, a whole list of items. And then once we discover who it is and, and we, uh, we track them down, then it's going to open up a whole new avenue, whether or not it's a felon and possession of a firearm or what have you, depending on his criminal history. Right. Well, unfortunately, it sounds like all the other charges would just be misdemeanor charges. I have a hunch you are going to find out this guy probably is a felon in possession of a firearm, which makes it a felony. And I can only say this. I hope that the judge throws the book at him. This is one of the most egregious cases of poaching I've seen in a long time. How can folks find the photos of the suspect so they can take a look at them and see if they recognize them. So we have, through our social media, we've made posts. There's been a reward uh, put out, and there's uh, been articles in the newspapers. So you can contact Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, the Stop Poaching Campaign. Their tip line, if you have any information, is 1-800-452-7888 or star OSP, which is star 677, and that's for turning in information on the case that you know of, but the photos are all over the internet. We've had a couple people that we've met with to uh, watch the video, even that we, uh, we can't just play the video as easily as we could uh, put out still frames of it. Sure. But uh, people that were able to say that it was definitely not a certain suspect. And, uh, and eliminate some of the pitfalls. We've got about four potential suspects right now. I'm not able to get any information on that, but we're, we're actually working on four different suspects. But there's a chance that more would surface. Well, folks, if you have any information on this case, there is a $500 reward being offered by the Oregon Hunters Association. But it shouldn't be the reward that motivates you on this. It's just doing the right thing. I mean, again, this is a really disturbing case here. This person needs to be identified. This person needs to be caught and brought to justice. Again, just dial star OSP on your cell phone or call the tip line at 1-800-452-7888. That's 452-7888. And let them know anything you might know about this, especially if you're listening today on the Oregon Coast and have some information about who the suspect may be. One other thing I want to throw out there is a a high-profile case, you're not investigating this one, is still open. Eight wolves poisoned in Union County in Northeast Oregon back February 2021. $50,000 reward. I understand that case is still open and has not been solved yet. Is that correct? As far as I know, that is correct. All right. Well, folks, if you have any information on that one, too, I know people have strong feelings about wolves, but... Poaching any animal is not the way to do things. You know, we we have something called the North American model of conservation, and poaching is not part of it. It's a waste of the resource. It is uh, definitely dangerous activities to be taking part in, and it harms all of us. So if you have any information about these poaching cases or any other ones, contact your local law enforcement authorities or your local state fish and game agencies, and turn them in. There's another wolf poisoning case up in northeast Washington as well in Stevens County, and we just need your help, folks. So let's get these poachers off the streets and put them behind bars where they need to be. Trooper Cooper, thanks for sharing this information with us today on Northwestern Outdoors Radio. Absolutely. Thank you for having me.
In other news, I've got to admit, I'm pretty excited to be heading back to Alaska this week with my daughter. Once again, we're going to be fishing out of Sportsman's Cove Lodge on Prince of Wales Island. It is a first-class operation they have there, and the fishing was fantastic last year for salmon, for halibut, for true cod. We even got into some sable fish, and we're going to be bringing a bunch home, but not everybody can do that. Let's face it, not everyone can afford a fishing trip to Alaska and then bring home all sorts of fish. So here's what you can do instead. You can order it and have it delivered right to your door from Sina Sea Seafood. They've got Copper River Sockeye Salmon, they've got Prince William Sound Sockeye as well, and they've got King Salmon, they've got Coho Salmon, they've got Halibut, they've got Sablefish. It's all absolutely delicious. They will package it in meal-sized portions for you, pack it with care, it'll be at your door and ready for you to cook that evening for dinner. Find out more about what Cena Sea has to offer through their website at cenasea.com, that's S-E-N-A, S-E-A for Sina Sea Seafoods. Again, SinaSea.com for premium wild-caught Alaskan seafood. Located in the northeast corner of Oregon, Wallowa County offers a unique destination rich in natural beauty and outdoors recreation. Enjoy the clear waters of Wallowa Lake. Take a tram to the top of Mount Howard for million-dollar views. Hike or ride into the Eagle Cap Wilderness and fish or raft the Wallowa and Grand Ronde Rivers. It's all waiting for you in beautiful Wallowa County. Plan your visit today at WallowaCountyChamber.com. That's WallowaCountyChamber.com. Enjoy a meal of wild Alaskan seafood delivered right to your door. Sina Sea offers premium quality wild Alaskan fish and shellfish to include Copper River King and Silver Salmon, Halibut, Black Cod, King Crab, and of course, Copper River Sockeye Salmon. Order it blast frozen or smoked and experience a slice of Alaska for a special meal you won't forget. Buy your seafood now at SinaSea.com. That's S-E-N-A-S-E-A, SinaSea.com. Anglers are getting a raise this year with the Northern Pike Minnow Sport Reward Fishery Program and the fish are biting. Here's how it works. First, register at a pike minnow station along the Columbia or Snake River. Next, go fishing for pike minnow and bring back all of them that measure nine inches or longer. The fish are worth six, eight, or ten dollars and the more fish you catch, the more each one is worth. Keep an eye out for tagged fish too because those are worth 500 bucks. Go fishing, make money, and have fun. Find out more at pikeminnow.org. Sportsman's Warehouse is America's premier outfitter, full of the gear you need to succeed this hunting season. Firearms, ammo, archery equipment, decoys, clothing, boots, and more. Find a location near you or shop online today at sportsmans.com. We've got time for one more shot of Northwestern Outdoors Radio with John Cruz. I'm glad you're back because we've got a couple salmon derbies to tell you about. One in Washington, one in Oregon. The first is the Peter Floor Memorial Salmon Derby, taking place on the Columbia River and the waters around Wenatchee, also known as the Wenatchee Salmon Derby. It's being put on by the Coastal Conservation Association, and it's happening this year on July 15th and 16th. 
There's $7,500 up for grabs, and the biggest fish this year will be worth $2,000, and the heaviest boat weight, $1,500. You can get your tickets at Valley Marine in Yakima or Hooked on Toys in Wenatchee, or get them online at ccawashington.org slash ncentralwa. The other derby to tell you about is one we talked about last week with Mary Duncan. That would be the CAF Rogue River Salmon Derby taking place in the Lower Rogue and in the Bay at Gold Beach. The dates for this one, August 10th through the 13th, and it's not the heaviest fish that wins this one. It's a blind bogey tournament, so any fish over 10 pounds has a chance to win. On the last day, they're going to draw the magic weight, and whoever's closest wins the first place prize. There's also raffle prize boards that you can check out at the Rogue Outdoor Store, Jots, and Lexes. And proceeds for this one benefit the Indian Creek Fish Hatchery, a volunteer-run salmon hatchery, something that's very rare indeed. Get your tickets at the Rogue Outdoor Store and get ready to have some fun fishing the waters around Gold Beach for big salmon in August. Now, if you need fishing gear, the place to go, obviously, is your local sportsman's warehouse store. They've got everything you need to catch salmon, whether you're fishing the Columbia River or the Rogue River or any other river where salmon are found, and boy, they're being found in a lot of places this summer. Head on down to your local sportsman's warehouse store today or order online anytime at sportsmans.com. And now it's time for your Sportsman's Warehouse Trivia Question of the Week, and it is about salmon. This species of salmon returns to Washington's rivers every other year. And here's your question. What species of salmon are we talking about here? Is it the Chinook salmon? Is it the Coho salmon? Or is it the Pink salmon? One lucky person who guesses right wins that $25 gift card we give away every week from Sportsman's Warehouse. You can enter through our Facebook page at Northwestern Outdoors Radio or by sending us an email from our website at northwesternoutdoors.com. We are completely out of time, so until next time, do take care, God bless, and make it a point to spend some time outdoors. Outdoors.